Uh, some guys are sentimentally attached to cars. I suppose I'm going to be attached to this car now, but I'm really attached to that desk. And uh, a few years ago, uh, the, one of the drawers broke. Uh, there, there's a drawer that holds file folders, and I keep all of my things I need to refer to regularly in there. And, when, and so it's heavy, and when you pull it out, it goes clunk. And then when you, lift, when you go back in, you have to lift it up and kind of shove it in there and and I always thought, you know, someday I'm going to fix that. And so this week I fixed it. I uh, got some new glides and uh, got down there and uh, um, got it done. Uh, took two or three tries, but uh, got the thing done. And now, now when I open it up, I, I'm all ready to, to do this weightlifting thing. It just comes out and it goes in. And I think, wow, that is the nicest thing. That drawer is supposed to go out and in and hold the files. That's what it's for. When it doesn't do that, it's broken. It's not working. God has given us a job to do in the world. And the question I want to ask you today is, are you doing what God's intended for you to do, or are you a broken drawer in God's desk? Please follow as I read from Matthew 5, verses 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. And glorify your Father in heaven. The, what we understand here, first of all, is this. God intends for Christianity to restrain the impact of sin. God uses the, the metaphors or the illustrations of salt and light to talk about us and what we should be doing in the world. We're salt and we're light. And uh, these two things certainly dovetail spiritually, as you'll see, but but the beginning point is to understand what salt was about in the time of Christ. Now, we, we most commonly think of salt as uh, something we put on the food or in the food to make it taste good, and certainly they did that. But the primary value of salt in that day was to retard the, uh, the uh, ruin of meat. They would salt the meat, and that would preserve the meat. They didn't have refrigeration, obviously, or freezers or that type of thing. And so he said, he said, if you have some salt, it's either going to work or it's not going to work. He, it, it's a little hard to translate. Um, in the New King James, it says, if the salt loses its flavor. Literally, it says, if the salt loses its saltiness. I think the NIV translates it that way. In other words, if the salt were to lose the characteristic of salt. Now, if you know about salt, you know that that's not, it's not possible for salt just sitting there to deteriorate. But there was a common thing that looked like salt in the day of Christ, and it was around the Sea of uh, the, the Dead Sea. And on the south end of the Dead Sea is where they, is more the shallow end, is where they tend to harvest the salt. And there is a white compound there that has many different minerals in it. 
but the, the actual salt content is very low. And so if you were to look at that and think, well, that's salt, you'd be disappointed. And so there may be some of that kind of image that's going on in, in the mind of Christ, but he's saying, look, you, you all know the difference between salt that really has that, that salting ability, that whatever it does to food and the pres- preserving that it brings. In our, in our world, they still preserve hams. Real hams are made by salt. They salt the meat and it, and it cooks the meat, for lack of a better word. It preserves the meat. And he says that, he basically is saying, now look, you know what salt does. You know how salt preserves things. It keeps it from getting corrupt. It keeps it from ruin. You are that in the world. Christians are God's way, one of God's way, to restrain the impact of sin, to not let it get as bad as it could be. One author, one commentator put it this way, when the world is left to itself, it festers and putrefies. Those are awful words, aren't they? Harsh words. When left to itself, it festers and putrefies, And I love this phrase, though. For the germs of evil are everywhere present and active. The world began as a perfect creation. But when sin came, decay set in. And as a result, the world became rotten, so rotten that God eventually removed nearly the entire population. He kept alive Noah and his family. That's what God's talking about here. He's saying the world left to itself rots, salt preserves, and we are to be that preservative. Um, the commentator going on says this, any person who knows the history, excuse me, this is a different commentator, any person who knows the history of mankind, even the history of the past hundred years, and thinks that man is evolving upward, is deceived and being deceived, as Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.13. Man has increased in scientific, medical, historical, educational, psychological and technical knowledge to an astounding degree, but he has not changed his own basic nature. And he has not improved society. Think with me in the 20th century about some events where there were very few Christians. Now one of those that you may not be as familiar are as, we, as some others will talk about though, is from the Soviet Union early in the 20th century, in the early 1900s, when uh, the Marxists first took over and, and, and suppressed Christianity and removed Christianity, they had a series of things called pogroms. It's just a different word for what we called in World War II the Holocaust of killing millions of people and getting rid of people, not only Jewish people, but others as well who were thought to be enemies of the state. Where was Christianity in that time? Well, it was being suppressed and being moved out and being persecuted. And so what happens? Evil flourishes. And then, of course, we fast forward to Nazi Germany. The Holocaust. The Holocaust. What happens when you remove the influence of Christianity from a government or from a military? You have a holocaust. Fast forward again to 
Uh, certainly we could look at the Soviet Union in the modern era. We could look at China and the cultural revolution uh, that happened sort of in a, in a parallel time with things in the Soviet Union and in Germany and, and moving farther forward, saying we're going to get rid of all of these intellectual influences, all of these Christian influences, and millions of people are killed. Fast forward to Cambodia and the Khmer Rouge, and millions of people killed. Fast forward to the Balkans and the genocide uh, of one kind of people killing the other kind of people because they don't like them. Fast forward to the drug cartels of South America. We all know there's a real absence of Christianity in the drug cartels, but have you ever stopped to say, maybe it's the very absence of creativity that lets evil be so evil? While we lament the deterioration in our own country, we should also realize it would be much worse if Christianity had not been influencing the country. God intends for our lives and our ministry and our work to be restraining the impact of sin. And we'll talk a little bit more about how that happens in a minute, but let's go on to understand that God intends for Christianity to illuminate righteousness. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Now, if you know your Bible, if you know your doctrine, you might say, now, wait a minute, Jesus is the light of the world. And that's absolutely right. We could look at verses like John 8, 12. Jesus spoke to the people and said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. What does it mean that Jesus is the light of the world? It means that the new life that he brought through the forgiveness of sin creates a clearly visible way to live. Um, if, if you need some confirmation that the world is walking in darkness, just look at the, the lives of the rich and famous that go this way and that way and the other way and up and down and back and forth and crash and burn why does that happen? Because they don't know how to walk. It's like they're walking through a minefield with their eyes closed and the lights off, and, and then when they step on a landmine, we go, wow, what happened to them? Jesus said, I came to give light. He said, he said, here's the light that you need. You need a relationship with me. You need the Holy Spirit inside of you guiding me. You need my word to guide you. And when you believe in me as your Savior, that I died on the cross to pay for your sins, I will take your sins away. I will give you a life of righteousness. I will put my light within you, myself within you. I will open your eyes. You will walk clearly and plainly. And so when we believe in Christ, we become light in the Lord. Christ is the light of the world, and he shines out through us as parts of his light, if you will. When Sue and I were in Africa a few years ago working with Jason and Sharon Nightingale, one night we rode in taxi cabs in Accra, Ghana, uh, back from the refugee camp back to our hotel, and those taxi cabs wouldn't have even gotten licenses here because they would have already been in the junkyard in that condition. I mean, the gas tank is literally a can, like our Canadian friends bring to Costco, sitting in the trunk with a hose down into it because the gas tank is gone. You know, I don't know where it went. 
And in the one that we got into, we, we get in this, it's a, a Renault, R-E-N-A-U-L-T. Remember those cars that used to be here? I think all the ones that were here, they packed up and shipped over there after they had been in several wrecks. And so we all pile into the car and, and hanging, out, hanging out of the dashboard is the light control. You know, the cable, it's hanging out there. And the, the, the door hook on this side is a whole bunch of wires and he's pulling his door closed, the taxi driver. And he takes this thing and he goes like this with it and the light, and the light, the headlight comes on. You know when your battery's going bad and your headlight's kind of weak? That's what it looked like, one headlight. And so we're, we're living by faith. We're riding down the road. And he went right by our hotel. We didn't even know it. We're just looking around. You know, we're tourists. What do we know? There's no, not very many street lights in Accra, Ghana. Very, very few. It's quite dark. And we go somewhere and finally he figures, well, we've gone too far. So he stops. He gets directions. He turns around goes the other way. And the headlight went out. I mean, and it, it, it'd be about like driving on one of these country roads because there's no, there's no street lights. But there were some taillights on the four-lane road. And so we followed the taillights back. Somehow, by God's grace, we made it back. That's, that's what it's like for people who don't know the Lord. They have a very dim vision of how to live life. And from time to time, that dim vision goes dark. So that all they can do is follow the other taillights. And I know we don't see that. We don't, we're not as aware of that as we ought to be. But that's what's going on. And Jesus has decided to use us to light the way. Now how do we do that? Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. I think uh, 1 Peter really tells us how to live in this world. In particular, of course, the, the topic we might say, or one of the key topics in 1 Peter is persecution. And so God is telling us through the, through the pen of the Apostle Peter, how should we live when the world doesn't treat us too well? I just want to take part of that today and say, how should we live in front of the world? I think what we're going to learn here is how God wants to impact the world by godliness. And I'm just going to skim through, and, and, and hopefully you can take some notes and come back and look at these in more detail later. But we're going to start in chapter 2, verse 6. He's been talking about salvation somewhat, and here he, here he says, Therefore it's contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, and he who believes on him, he's talking about Christ, he who believes on Christ will by no means be put to shame. Therefore, to you who believe he is precious, but to those who are outside, who are in the dark, who are disobedient, he is the stone which the builders rejected, but he's become the chief cornerstone. And he is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They're walking in the darkness, tripping over Christ because they don't see him and don't like him. They stumble because they are disobedient to the word to which they were appointed. But you, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, 
Why? So that you can sit and enjoy it on Sunday and go home and watch the Seahawks? No, so that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into the marvelous light. You who once were not a people, but you're now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but who had obtained mercy. What does it mean to shine? A shining Christian, Christian first of all, speaks about Christ. A shining Christian speaks about Christ. If, in, keeping the, in keeping the illustration of the, of the light, if, if you imagine that light as a flashlight, when you talk about Christ, it's you shining the flashlight right on the area that needs to be worked on. You know, when I was working on that, I, I pulled that big drawer out of my desk, and, and I had to kind of get my head down in there and the tools in my hand, and, and I couldn't see the little screw to screw it in, so I put a flashlight in there, and I could see what I was doing. We take the flashlight of Christ and say, See, this is what you need. When we speak about Christ, it's not just proclaiming the truth. It's showing the way. It's showing the path. It's showing the light It's saying, don't stub your toe on your life. Look, here's what Christ can do and will do. A Christian speaks about Christ, a shining Christian. Secondly, a shining Christian avoids fleshly desires. Look at verse 11. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners, or people who are foreigners in a foreign country, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain. Abstain, say no to your fleshly desires which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. Do you understand how our obedience and the, the impact, the, there is an impact on those who don't believe? Our obedience is not just for God. It's not just for us. It's because the world around us is looking at us. And he says, we have to say no to our, the, the sins of the flesh. Uh, every Christian is tempted. Every unbeliever is tempted. And when they look at us, they're saying, why in the world should I believe in Christ? They live just like I live. There's nothing different about them. They curse, they swear, they talk bad about their husband or wife. They criticize the boss. They're indulging in pornography. We're all on the same page. No, he says abstain, abstain. Say no. Say no so you can show the light to people. We all have people we want to come to Christ. We all have people we struggle with. But if we want anybody to come to Christ, we've got to live righteously because they're looking for a reason to tear us down so it makes them feel better. We've got to say no to our sin for their sake so that someday they too will wind up in heaven glorifying God. A shining Christian, number three, obeys the law. Therefore, therefore, since the Gentiles, since the unbelievers are watching you, 
since their spiritual life hangs in the balance. Therefore, submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors or to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good, For it is the will of God that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as servants of God. Honor all people. We just went through an election where a lot of people have a lot of opinions question we have to ask is are we submitting ourselves to every ordinance of man not because the man deserves it not because the government is so fair and honest and right but because God says you need to submit to the king for my sake people need to see you as law abiding folks Now I know that grates on you sometimes because the very people who will criticize you are breaking the law themselves. Doesn't matter. You know what? Our job is not our own comfort. Our job is not our own advancement. Our job is not our own wealth. Our job is to shine and say, God can give you the ability to submit yourself even when it's hard. A shining Christian obeys the law. I have never felt more sheepish. I have never felt more like I wanted to crawl under something than when I was serving a public agency in another city and when some men who were Christians, who were known to be Christians, broke the law and had to be fired from their job as enforcers of the law. And I had to go in and sit in front of the chief who did not believe in Christ and say, you know, I hope you understand we're not all that way. I hated that. Boy, it's hard to obey the law sometimes, some laws. We've got to do it because we're shining God's light And maybe we don't even fully understand why that matters so much. But God says it matters. And so it's got to matter to us. Well, a shining Christian also is not prejudiced. Look at verse 17. Honor the people that are honorable. Honor the people that are like you. Is that what it says? How many people does it say to honor? How many? All. The word people is, 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 sub, is suggested by the text. What it literally says is honor all. Our society has become very concerned about being what we call politically correct, which is speaking nicely to every single person. And sometimes Christians are the ones who criticize that more than anybody. We should have been taking the lead in speaking nicely to everyone. We should have been taking the lead in finding ways to communicate with people 
that said, I know you are differently abled and it doesn't matter to God. We need to be out there honoring all. A Christian is not prejudiced. If you have racial prejudice, if you have class prejudice, if you have political party prejudice, you need to deal with that. Honor all. A shining Christian is not prejudiced. A shining Christian cares for fellow Christians. He says, honor all, and then he says, love the brotherhood. What's the brotherhood? It's a way to speak about Christianity. When God uses the word brothers uh, in the New Testament, uh, sometimes he uses the word sisters. But he's saying, he's talking about Christianity. He says, love the brotherhood. I don't know if we should make a lot of hay about the fact that he says, honor everybody but love Christians. Uh, you know, I think God does intend for us to take even better care of our Christian brothers and sisters than we do of the world in general, but it doesn't mean we ignore the world. We honor all. We love the brotherhood. We take orders from God alone. Fear God. Certainly, we can see a progression. Honor everybody. Love the Christians. Fear God. In the next one, he's going to say, honor the king. He doesn't say, fear the king. He says, honor the king. We should fear God. What does it mean to fear God? It means that only God is an authority, is the ultimate authority figure in my life. There are other lesser authorities, but he's the one that I have to obey. He's the one that I have to please. And so at the end of the day, I, I, I will obey the king because I fear God. Or there will be times, and I'll give you a couple examples in just a minute, when because I fear God, I will disobey. But I need to make sure that I am living in the fear of God, not in the fear of any other person. <clears throat> Lastly, in verse 17, a shining Christian respects the government. Honor the king. He, he, he said this twice now in the passage. Isn't that interesting? Verse 13, submit to every ordinance of man. And then verse 17, honor the king. Now think about Peter writing this. You might think your king doesn't deserve your honor that much. Who was the king when Peter was writing? Who was it? Nero? The guy throwing Christians to the lions? The guy putting Christians on sticks and lighting them on fire so they light up his outside party? The guy who, who blamed Christians for the burning of Rome? Peter says, honor that guy. Really? Now, I, maybe it takes a little bit of prayer and a little bit of working on to figure out how do I honor him but, but not not to obey some of the wickedness that he's trying to get me to do, well, that, that may take a challenge. But when we live that way, our light shines because God has decided that's what is going to make it shine. In verse 18, a shining Christian is an excellent employee. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh is your boss good and gentle, or is your boss harsh? I knew a woman in Tuckwill used to get a headache every day when her boss would come by, her cubicle. Because every day he was pushing, 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 pushing. Oh. Does he deserve 
Does he deserve her good hard work? No. But God says we need to be, we need to be submissive because God has allowed it. Verse 19, this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. You get special points with God for enduring a harsh boss. That ought to make you smile, if nothing else. You know the old song? Will there be any stars in my crown, in my crown, when I lay my heavy burden down? Well, there'll be more stars if you endure gracefully a harsh boss. Ah, I don't like that. I don't like that either. It's commendable if, if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? He said, you do wrong and you get beaten. Don't come whining to God about that. But when you do good and suffer... If you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his footsteps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return. And it goes on to be an excellent employee, makes us shine. A shining Christian is a cooperative, caring, self-denying church member. Oh, excuse me, I'm, I'm, I'm one ahead. Submissive wife or an understanding husband. Look at chapter 3. Wives, likewise. That word likewise tells me that he's continuing this whole thought of how we're supposed to act in the world. Wives, be submissive to your own husbands, and so on. And then down to verse 7. Husbands, likewise. Again, continuing this thought, dwell with them with understanding. You want to be a shining Christian? Be a submissive wife or an understanding husband. If you're going to work talking trash about your husband or your wife, you are not shining for the Lord. We've got to work at that because the world is hanging in the balance. And then in verses 8 through 11, a shining Christian is a cooperative, caring, self-denying church member. Finally, you see, he's carrying this thought on. Finally, this is my last thought, he says. All of you, all of you that I'm writing to, be of one mind. Have compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tenderhearted. Be courteous. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. And he goes on and, and, and just elaborates on that. How in the world are we going to light up this little part of Ferndale if we can't love one another sincerely. But when we do love one another, the world sees what is possible. They see what is possible. I knew somebody one time who's, who was not a Christian. His family were Christians. And when the church would get in a tiff, he said, eh, those people down at that church are fighting again. Could that be why he never came to faith in Christ all the way through his life? A shining Christian is a cooperative, caring, self-denying church member. A, Christian, a, a shining Christian suffers persecution graciously. 
Chapter 3, verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord are against those who do evil. And who is he who will harm you if you have become followers of what is good? Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats or be troubled. And lastly, a shining Christian is ready to explain his life wisely. Verse 15, the verse we're most familiar with in this passage. But sanctify or set apart the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a a defense, an explanation, uh, telling why you believe and what you believe to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and in fear. And this, then, this kind of wraps up this passage when he's been saying, we are called to live differently. Many people commonly disobey the law. Many people commonly treat their husband or wife poorly. Many people commonly feed the, the sins of the flesh. If we don't do those things, we stand out just by living a godly life. We don't even have to go to work thinking, I am going to shine the light of righteousness on the wickedness of my coworkers. In fact, if you're thinking that way, there may be an attitudinal problem. But when we go to work and we live a consistently righteous life, we may not even realize how the words that we speak and the actions that we take are so different from the norm. And God says, when we do that, sooner or later, somebody's going to come and say, what is going on with you? Or, as you speak the words of Christ, we saw at the beginning of this, somebody's going to come and say, tell me more about that. Does that happen very often? No. But God is able to make it happen. God is able to call people to himself. Now, in the passage in Matthew, and, and let's, let's turn back there if you would, one of the big pushes of this, I mean, what Jesus really, he, he makes two declarative statements, and then he makes a, a command. And the declarative statement is this, you are salt, you are light. It, there's a sense in which he doesn't say you need to try to be salt or you need to try to be light. He just says, this is what you are. But he does say, you need to maintain the quality of those things. You need to maintain the saltiness or you need to maintain the light. And in particular, the way he talks about the light is in verse 15 or verse 14. First of all, he says, you're the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. He says, if you're out there on the hilltop, people see you. And then he says, now they don't light a lamp and then put it under a basket, but they set it out on a lampstand so it gives light to, our, to all who are in the house. So there's a clear implication here when he says in verse 16, let your light so shine. The implication is you can put a basket on your light. So what happens when we walk in the light? What happens is that God is honored when Christians maintain the influence that God intends for us to have. The awesome reality that is here, the privilege that is here is this. We can impact the world. You can impact the world. 
if your light is shining, if your salt is salty. Listen to this episode from the, from the apostles in the book of Acts. They came to Thessalonica where there was a, a synagogue or a, a worship place of the Jews. Then Paul, as his custom was, went into them and for three Sabbaths he reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead. You see, the Jewish people were familiar with the Old Testament truth of the Messiah, but they really didn't grasp the suffering and rising again part. And so he focused on that, and he said, I need to explain to you why, yes, the promised Messiah did have to suffer and rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. For three weeks, he preached the gospel, he explained it all to them, and a lot of people got saved. Praise the Lord. That's what he's after. That's what we're after. But the Jews, who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace and gathering a mob set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city saying, these who have turned the world upside down have come here also. Christianity made such an impact that they're... Basically, what they're trying to do, of course, here is they're going to the leaders saying, there's going to be a riot, there's going to be a tumult, our whole way of life is going to be messed up if you allow these Christians to go on. Now, there's an element of truth in that. You know, there was a time when they went into a place where they worshipped, and, and, and all the guys who made these little silver idols said, we're going to lose our livelihood because people are going to quit worshipping these little idols. And they tried to stir up trouble but here's the thing, these who have turned the world upside down. Friends, I want to encourage you today that you can change the part of the world that is around you. And some of you might be able to change a greater part of that. From a pastor from England of a few years ago, he says this, most competent historians are agreed in saying that undoubtedly what saved England from a revolution like the one in France at the end of the 18th century was nothing but the evangelical revival. This was not because of anything done directly, like people trying to change the government through the evangelical church, but because masses of individuals had become Christians and were living this better life and had a higher outlook. The whole political situation was affected and the great acts of parliament which were passed in the last century were mostly due to the fact that there were such large numbers of individual Christians found in the land. In other words, there are just so many Christians that... that you know, I expect that Parliament had a higher number of Christians, and as they made decisions on things, that they they had a they had a they had a civil um, revolution. No more a king. Now it's a constitutional monarchy. How did that happen without the shedding of blood, like France? Because Christians, because of large numbers of Christians, 
Christians can influence things, and the influence of Christianity can change people. An article from the latest issue of the World Magazine about Georgia State Representative Doug McKillop. Three years ago, Georgia State Representative Doug McKillop, a Democrat, vocally opposed, he opposed the pro-life cause. He's for abortion. Yet on March 29th, he stood on the Georgia House floor as a Republican testifying in favor of a bill he sponsored, the Pain-Capable Unborn Child Protection Act. In other words, this is a bill saying at 20 weeks a child can begin to feel pain, so we should not have abortion past 20 weeks. Now, we shouldn't have any abortion at all, but this is beginning to limit it. And he sponsored that bill, and he stood on the, on the, on the, the floor of the Georgia uh, Congress saying, saying this is what we need to do. So he's pro-abortion, now he's fighting against abortion. What had changed? One simple but crucial thing. In 2009, McKillop professed faith in Christ. And a year later, he switched parties. He stepped fully into the pro-life ring by introducing this bill. You want to change the world? Change the representatives' lives. That's how we change the world. And it can be done. And by the way, they passed that vote. And so they've, they've sought, they've, they have worked to limit abortion somewhat. The awesome reality, we can impact the world. We can impact our circle of influence in the world. Wednesday night, we changed the world for one person. Little girl who's a foster child of some people who bring her to our Awana Club from outside the church. She started coming to our Awana Club on the second day she lived with these people. And, and here several months later, she's accepted Christ as her Savior. That's how you change that part of the world. We can make laws about parents and welfare reform and all that stuff, but if we want to change the world, we need to see people come to faith in Christ. We can change the world. Now, do I believe that this world is ever going to become Christian as a majority? Not until Jesus is sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. But we can have a salting influence. We can stop the decay. We can show people how to walk. We can, we can influence the world because that is how God does it. Now, the certain reality is this. We will encounter persecution. The uh, inauguration of our president is coming soon, and it is customary to have somebody pray uh, after the swearing-in. For many years, it was Billy Graham. Billy Graham's not physically able to do that sort of thing anymore. And, uh, and so they invited a man named Lou, I believe I'm pronouncing his name right, Giglio. He's a pastor of a church down in Atlanta, and he was asked to come because he's worked hard not only as a pastor but to end human trafficking, as in you know forced sexual slavery and things like that. He's worked against that. So he was invited to come and pray at the president's inauguration. 
The evangelical pastor chosen to give the benediction at President Barack Obama's inauguration withdrew from the ceremony after remarks surfaced that he made 20 years ago condemning the gay rights movement. Okay? Now, now here's my point. This guy's trying to shine for the Lord. And what happens? They, they literally found a sermon that he preached 20 years ago that's called vetting in the government circles. That's when they go back and check you out to make sure you're not a terrorist or, God forbid, a Bible thumper. And they found him preaching, saying that homosexuality is a sin and so on and so forth. And so he withdrew. Now, I have to tell you that when he withdrew, he didn't do it saying, yes, I said it 20 years ago, and I believe it as strongly today. He withdrew saying, well, I haven't talked about that much in the last 20 years. Sort of like, well, it should be okay for me to come. Hey, friends, if you're going to shine for the Lord, the Lord will change the world through you, but it will be an expensive process. I mean, look all around the world. We've talked about that many times. You know, yes, are you going to pay a price for that? Yes, you are. Now, <clears throat> there is a desire here that's implicit in Jesus' instructions that we also need to think about. And the desire is what I've called the desire for privacy. And that's why I've titled my sermon, The Opposite of Privacy, Authentic Christianity, The Opposite of Privacy. Look at verse 15. Nor do they put a lamp, take a lamp and put it under a basket. There's a desire by Christians to say, I believe in Jesus, I love my church, I love my brothers and sisters, but I'm just going to kind of get under this basket here with some brothers and hang out until Jesus comes. Now, it's obvious why we want to do that, because it's not fun to stand up for the Lord and to have somebody criticize, to have somebody deny us something, to have somebody be angry with us. That's not fun. But Jesus said, don't cover your light. Be out in the world shining for him. One author put it this way, when the Father created the Christian community, he never had any intentions of locating it in the sheltered cove, but on a windswept hilltop, where it might be an eternal witness to the way man should live. You know, we, uh, we want to be safe. There's a desire for privacy. We want to be safe. This is the Crystal Cathedral. Uh, fallen on some hard economic times. There's good reasons for that. But we've criticized that over the years. Uh, you know, when it was first built, I, forget, I think it cost $100 million, you know, like 25 years ago. And People said, wow, you could spend that money on missions work and so on. I'll tell you one thing they got right with the Crystal Cathedral. The world can see everything that's going on inside. That comes really close to being a light on the hill to the extent that it would preach the real gospel. It, if we didn't have to project the words on the screen, it would be real nice to have full-on glass and stand up and wave to people while they're walking down the street saying, come on, come on in here. Shining forth, no privacy, we're, nothing to hide, we're all open. We put lots of information on the website, we, we got nothing to hide. And as individual Christians and as a body of Christ, we need to be shining, not, not 
somehow protecting, not circling the wagons, not trying to kind of keep out the evil influence. Yes, we need to be separate from sin, but we need to be welcoming and open. And we need to be going. The fearful possibility is that we will fail because of sin. When this verse says, if the salt loses its flavor, um, how shall it be seasoned? One of the words that's used in here is the word for moron. I know that's odd. If the salt becomes moronic. And, and the root idea, I did a lot of research and, I, and I, I couldn't find as good of an answer as I wanted, but it seems to be this. When the word moron is applied to the mind, it means it doesn't work. It's dull, it's, it's not as sharp and strong as it ought to be. And so that word is applied to salt. In other words, if the salt becomes dull or ineffective or not doing what it's supposed to do. And so there's a clear implication that we can fail. The Apostle Paul knew there was a possibility of failure. I discipline my body and I bring it into subjection lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. If we don't live godly lives and conduct ministry in godly ways, we will cease to influence the world as God intends for the world to be influenced. One author, one author said this really poetically, whenever tension ceases to exist, between the church and the world, one of two things has happened. Either the world has become completely converted to Christ, or the church has been watered down and compromised in its original heritage. Think with me again about churches and their influence or lack of it on the world. Think about the Russian Orthodox Church during communism. Why didn't it exert assaulting effect? because it was concerned with its own existence and going along. What about the Lutheran church during Nazi Germany? What about the Greek Orthodox church today in Greece? Or the liberal churches of our own country? Such churches have no impact on the societies of the world. They go along with the world, but they don't change the world. And they are ultimately of no value to God. To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, these things says the amen, the faithful, the true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Let's put that in common words. They didn't upset anybody's boat. Everybody's kind of okay. We don't want to be that kind of church. We don't want to be a mean church. We don't want to be a harsh church, but we want to be a church that is salty and a church that is bright. What's the holy opportunity? We cause God to be glorified. And this passage really sums it up. Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ, and through us he diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. God always leads us in triumph. How is that possible? For we are to God the fragrance, the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, to the other the aroma of life leading to life, and who is sufficient for these things. 
When we shine as lights for God through our words and actions, we put God in a position to receive glory. God will receive some glory from the saved. People will come to heaven. Uh, God willing, uh, this little girl Wednesday night made a very real decision, and someday she'll be in heaven, and she'll look back and say, that First Baptist Church told me the truth. They shined the light on me, and I accepted Christ. And, and, and there will be a, sh- a shout of joy in heaven, and God will be glorified because he saved that little girl through us. And some glory will come from the condemned. Because there will be people who end up at the great white throne standing in front of God saying, but, 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 but. And he says, wait a minute, did you sit in that first Baptist church? Didn't they share that gospel with you? Didn't they live that life in front of you? Yes, they did. And God will be glorified in his condemnation of sin because they refuse to believe in Christ. God will also be glorified by the angels, both good and bad. The scripture says the angels are looking into these things about salvation. They're they're learning about God. They're not infinite in their knowledge. They're finite. And they're learning about God, watching him work with us. And at the end of the day, they go, wow, you are really something, God. God receives glory. One day this week, I got all ready. In fact, maybe it was, I'm not sure if it was this week or last week. Got my little swimming suit on, got my big giant towel that goes from head to foot, and I headed out to the hot tub. Going to have a little soak in the hot tub. And it was cold. (laughs) And I tell you what, I knew what Jesus meant when he said, I wish you were either hot or cold, but because you, I want to throw you out of here. (laughs) A hot tub that doesn't work is an expensive lawn decoration. And about to get more expensive. I don't want to be a spiritual lawn decoration for God. I want to be salty and bright. Heavenly Father, help us. We do like our privacy. We, it is hard to spend time and to connect And to shine your light. But I pray that you'll help us to do it. Help us to do it here. In this building. Help us to do it at our workplace. Help us to do it in our homes. Help us to do it wherever we go. May you be glorified. And especially may you be glorified as more people see the light. And taste the salt. And come to faith in Christ. I pray in his name. Amen.